This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. My fellow cardio nerds, welcome to the very first of a series of recordings we're going to have as we invite colleagues from vascular medicine fellowship programs to discuss with us great vascular medicine cases. So I'd like to welcome colleagues from the MGH Vascular Medicine Fellowship, Andrew Dix, Prateek Sharma. Welcome to the show. Can't wait to dive into this case. Amit, I really share your excitement and anticipation for this episode. But first, we wanted to thank Dr. Elizabeth Ratchford, director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Vascular Medicine for the impact that she has had on us with regards to this mini-series and for her commitment and passion to the field of vascular medicine. So thank you so much, Dr. Ratchford. Okay, before we dive into the case, Andrew and Pratik, why don't you introduce yourself to the CardioNerds family? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having us. So my name is Andrew Dix. I am originally from Georgia. I went to medical school at Medical College of Georgia, but have been up in Boston for the past four years. I did my internal medicine training at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center across town, and then I've been at MGH for the past year doing a non-invasive vascular medicine fellowship. Hey guys, um, very excited to be here. Thanks for having us. My name is Pratik Sharma. I did my medical school at University of Louisville, and then I went to um, Boston University, Boston Medical Center for Internal Medicine. General Cardiology Fellowship was at Stony Brook University Hospital, and then Interventional Cardiology Fellowship was at Temple University Hospital. And now I'm here at Massachusetts General Hospital for the Vascular Medicine and Intervention Fellowship. It's just like 50% non-invasive and 50% invasive. So it's great because I get to spend a lot of time outside of the cath lab also with Andrew Dix and in the vascular lab and with the non-invasive vascular medicine section here. Wow, Pratik, Andrew, that is fantastic. And hearing your journeys of where you've got to this fellowship is just nothing but inspiring. So let's get right into it and take us to one of your favorite places in Boston. We've said on the show how much we love Boston. Take us to your favorite place so we can talk about some serious cardiology slash vascular medicine. Well, I think right now it's mid-80s outside. It's sort of perfect. So it's especially a nice time to go to the night shift breweries. They have a sort of a pop-up open place on the Charles River Esplanade. I think that'd be a great place to sit outside, have a few drinks, and talk about a great case. What do you think, Andrew? Sounds great. Let's knock a few back. All the more reason to join you guys in Boston. So we're here. Let's uh, dive in. What case do you guys have for us? All right. So we have a case that we're seeing on our vascular medicine consult service a couple of weeks ago. We have a 59-year-old gentleman with no real significant past medical history who was admitted to Massachusetts General Hospital after unfortunately having a fall from about 15 to 20 feet off of a ladder. He had landed on his back and on his left wrist. So yes, he presented with several orthopedic and neurosurgical issues related to the fall. He was found to have an L1 fracture as well as a left distal radius fracture. He was initially admitted to neurosurgical service and appropriately underwent a 
T12 to L2 fusion on the first day of hospitalization. And on the second day of hospitalization, underwent fixation of that left radial fracture. He was doing quite well on the neurosurgical service, working with physical therapy and or occupational therapy on hospital days three and four. And on hospital day five uh, in the evening, was resting comfortably in bed when he developed sudden onset tachycardia with heart rates in the 120s to 130s, as well as new onset shortness of breath with an associated new O2 requirement. At the time of this event, where his uh, was noted to have new worsening tachycardia and hypoxia, he was only on Lovenox 40 milligrams daily as DBT prophylaxis, which was started on hospital day three, as well as Tylenol PRN. Just before we get into any further information, just to back up a little bit more about his past medical history, he really had no past medical history. He was originally from Mexico and had immigrated to the United States several years ago. He does not take any medications at home, has no known allergies, really only known family history is that of hypertension in his father, and he works in construction. He denies any tobacco or alcohol use. Andrew, essentially, you've got a pretty healthy middle or a little bit older middle-aged guy who comes back with shortness of breath shortly after being admitted for orthopedic procedures. What was going on in your mind or the team's mind about how to put this together so far? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, in patients who have recently had surgery and are hospitalized thereafter, I think you think of a couple different things with regards to why somebody might become short of breath. As a vascular medicine fellow. I'm certainly biased by what I have seen and think that, you know, one of the more common things that we do see is pulmonary embolism. But in order to not box ourselves into that diagnosis, you must think about other things. I think things such as atelectasis, uh, especially as he's been largely bed bound during this period of time. He's had recent neurosurgical intervention, albeit in a lower distribution, but you think of things like an aspiration event or some other sort of consolidative process. You think of things like bleeding, right? So he recently had surgery and although not in places that might hide blood all that well, still certainly could have something retroperitoneal that we're not seeing. And then things like hypovolemia, you know, post-op, it's uncertain what sort of dietary things he's had, you know, constantly being MPO and whatnot. And so thinking, you know, what is his volume status? Has he been eating and drinking appropriately and whatnot? Yeah, Andrew, actually, that, that was perfect. As I was asking that question, these were exactly the things that were going on in my mind. And so essentially you're thinking, especially after being post-op orthopedic procedures, bed-bound, could he have had a venous thromboembolic event? The second thing you mentioned was, you know, other pulmonary processes that were non-infectious, like atelectasis or aspiration pneumonitis, although we're getting a little bit further away from that. Certainly post-op infections, nosocomial infections, like pneumonia with the shortness of breath, but really infections anywhere could give you the sensation of shortness of breath if you're septic. And then fluid shifts, right? And so we didn't hear in history that he has a cardiopulmonary problem where he shouldn't tolerate fluid shifts, but you could have undiagnosed cardiomyopathies and certainly silent perioperative MIs in somebody who has risk factors, and now they're presenting as the after effect of that. So we've got a reasonably broad differential diagnosis, and that's going to help us contextualize the physical exam and the rest of the data as we get back. There's one other thing that I think is worth mentioning that we tend to do when we talk to these, especially the surgeons, because we see not an infrequent amount of these, is talking to the actual surgeons and reviewing the case. As you guys both are in your interventional years, you'll know that there's a lot of things that happen that aren't necessarily on the report. And so it's important to touch back with the people who are within the OR to see if there's anything that could have happened, any complications if the case took longer. Although it'd be pretty typical for where his operation was, anytime you have in your surgical procedure, 
You could also think about damage to any nerves that could then result in, it's not in this case, but sometimes you can have people who have hemiparesis of the diaphragm. And so these are things to think about, and especially sort of closing the loop with the primary services can be very helpful. Now that's actually really, really, really helpful, Pratik, and also something that may be overlooked, especially as a consulting team coming in. And I'll add another point is, you know, people coming into the hospital for the first time, you know, with new surgical needs, maybe started on medications that they had not previously started on. So allergic reactions, that type of thing is also something that it would be on my differential, particularly say, you know, he may have had antibiotics as prophylactic during the surgery. So maybe he a couple days out from that, but just I would review the recent medications, also confirm that he's been getting the anoxaparin 40 milligrams as prescribed, that kind of thing, and not declining that because of the injections. Those types of things are things that I'd also be reviewing as I make my way over there. So this is great, great discussion. So Andrew, with that, what did you find on physical exam? So the the vitals were notable for an elevation of his heart rate to the 120s to 130s. On the monitor, it appeared to be sinus tachycardia, but this is new from prior when his heart rates were in the 70s to 80s earlier in the day. His blood pressures were, when I saw him, 113 over 68, but over the preceding hour or so had ranged from systolics as low as in the 100s with a nadir of 102 and as high as 124. And again, this is a subtle change from where he was prior. He typically had had systolics in the 120s to 130s, so a little bit reduced. His respiratory rate was noted to be in the mid-30s and getting up to the 40s whenever he was talking, and he was satting 96% on two liters nasal cannula. He was afebrile at the time. His exam was overall fairly benign, aside from some noticeable mild respiratory distress, as well as some noticeable tachypnea, predominantly with talking. He denied any of these symptoms, but if you kind of sat there and watched him as he talked or as he rested, you would note that he had some shallow respirations and was breathing quite quickly. His cardiovascular exam was largely notable for sinus tachycardia with no evidence of murmur scallops or rubs and no evidence of RV heave. His pulmonary exam was notable for really no adventitious sounds. Both lungs were clear. And his extremities were notable for the fact that there really was no swelling, no discomfort uh, on palpation of his thigh or calves. So he is tachycardic, tachypnic, mildly hypoxic, and noticeably in some distress. What was the rest of the data? Keeping our differential in mind, I think we're able to actually cross off quite a few of the different etiologies we had thought of previously. So his labs were notable. He did have a a mild leukocytosis to 11.5, which is new from the prior CBC check earlier in his hospitalization. His hemoglobin was normal, as was his platelet count. His coags were also normal, and his basic metabolic panel was also normal. The main notable findings were he did have an elevated troponin. At NGH, we use a high sensitivity troponin. And so his was elevated to 368 on the first check. And just for reference range, since I know not everybody uses the high sensitivity troponin, the normal at NGH is from 0 to 14. So quite elevated. He also had a pro-BNP that was checked that was 2,568. And again, normal in in our lab is from 0 to 900. Jeez, Andrew, those are uh, some really impressive cardiac biomarker elevations, right? I mean, you're many fold above the upper limit of normal. It really helps to start hone in our differential diagnosis to something affecting the heart. Absolutely. Absolutely. And going back to kind of the discussion we had about what we think could be going on, I think you know, several of the factors within the differential, namely pulmonary embolism or one of the undiagnosed yet cardiac diseases 
in this gentleman who really, as far as we know, does not have much in the way of a past medical history, but potentially has some sort of undiagnosed process that we might be diagnosing for the first time right now. Yeah. So uh, what did you guys do next? The case is kind of heating up a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So next step, we, we got an ECG to confirm our findings of what we were seeing on his telemetry. And so the ECG, similar to what we got with regards to the exam, he's tachycardic to a, at this time 131, pure sinus in nature. He has a new incomplete right bundle branch block and then some nonspecific ST and T wave abnormalities kind of in some of the precordial as well as some of the limb leads that were also new. You know, you have a relatively healthy gentleman, which could sometimes just be another way of saying someone with less healthier contact. And so there may be undiagnosed arrhythmias, especially in SVT. Someone coming in with a particularly high adrenergic state could be in an SVT. And as they're, you know, if they have less healthcare contact, there might be some mild to moderate unmasked CAD. And so combining an SVT with a high stress situation, blood loss during a surgery could certainly lead to some form of type 2 MI, although his biomarker elevations are certainly elevated, but his ECG was helpful here in sort of taking that off the table. Right. And so I, I agree with you. You've got a gentleman with no past medical history, otherwise healthy, comes in with a mechanical fall, has uh, orthopedic procedures, and now comes in, you know, after discharge, comes in postoperatively with shortness of breath, tachycardia, tachypnea, hypoxia, found to have elevated cardiac biomarkers and uh, a new sinus tachycardia with a new right bundle branch block. I mean, this is, I believe, a, a pulmonary embolism until proven otherwise. And I'll just add to that. We also heard that he had clear lungs and we didn't see a chest x-ray, but assuming the exam is good and, and detecting this correctly, when you have this scenario of tachycardia, tachypnea, hypoxia, and clear lungs, that to me is pulmonary embolism until ruled out. At this point, we have a high pretest probability for a pulmonary embolism. So what are you going to go for next, a D-dimer or a CT, PE protocol? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. I think one of the things that we learn in vascular medicine is that really you can't diagnose a pulmonary embolism without the imaging. So if we were to check a D-dimer, it could be helpful, but it likely won't be helpful. If it's low, does that change your clinical suspicion enough to say that this guy doesn't have a pulmonary embolism? As you said, you know, with all the data we have thus far pointing towards this guy having a pulmonary embolism, I'm not sure that that is convincing enough to say we shouldn't still get imaging. And if it's high, it adds maybe a, a little bit of evidence to say this is a PE. But as we all are aware, D-dimers can be elevated for a myriad of reasons, namely things that cause inflammation. So this guy recently had surgery in two different locations. Could he have an elevated D-dimer just because of that? And so given kind of the sudden change and the fact that you know, he's becoming not hemodynamically unstable, but, you know, he's had enough hemodynamic changes to be concerned about PE being the, the etiology. We jump next to getting a, a CTPA. Yeah, and that is such an important point, right? Here, your, your Bayesian analysis, a negative D-dimer at this point, one, is highly unlikely because it is so nonspecific, but two, with given the high pretest probability, would not do anything to temper our suspicion that this is a pulmonary embolism, we would still go for imaging. And so here, the D-dimer, regardless of what it is, wouldn't change our management. The value of a D-dimer is really a, a very low pretest probability or even intermediate pretest probability. And a patient that has a very low pretest probability, we can even use our PE clinical rule, our criteria, where if they have none of, you know, a certain set of 
of clinical features, you can essentially rule it out, like age above 50, heart rate at or above 100, hypoxia, leg swelling, hemoptysis, recent trauma or surgery, history of PE or DVT in the past, or hormonal therapy. But again, in this case, given the high pretest probability, we've got to go straight to the money shot. And so what did we find? Yeah, exactly what we thought we would find. So sure enough, the patient had bilateral pulmonary emboli involving the right and left main pulmonary arteries with extension thrombus into the lobar and segmental arteries in all lobes bilaterally. In addition to the thrombus itself, the CT obviously gives us a nice image of the heart. And so notably, there were findings of moderate RV strain as well as an RV to LV ratio greater than one. So Pratika, what does all that mean for us here? The CT is especially helpful here. In many of these patients, especially in the post-operative setting, you'll get to see how much thrombotic burden you have, which is not something that we use to classify patients, but it is something that can be used to think about the technical considerations that may potentially come down the line. Things that are helpful to see, if we see a pulmonary artery diameter before the bifurcation, if it's enlarged, that can speak to a more chronic process. This is where going down to review the CT scans, which we've come to do frequently over the course of the year and it's pretty standard, and reviewing it with a radiologist, especially a vascular radiologist or someone who takes a look at CTPAs, especially if you happen to be at a place where they treat patients with pH, you can see sometimes a high quality CTPA can almost serve as a VQ scan, and you can see whether there's chronic embolic events that could be contributing to a patient's presentation. Then traditionally, the RV to LV ratio being greater than one is a sign, a CT sign of right heart strain. It is not a cardiographic sign of right heart strain, but it is something that's used to sort of demonstrate that we have a significant RV afterload problem as a result of the pulmonary embolism. The other things that can be seen, which I don't believe we see in this study particularly, it's, it can be phase-dependent, especially in the venous uh, circuit, as you could see reflux of contrast down into the IVC, which again is easy enough to sort of think back in comparison to your echocardiographic findings where you could see sort of you know enlarged IVCs that don't change with resophasic variation. Before we diagnose PE, it's all about our pretest probability. You know, do we think that this is a low pretest probability, intermediate, or, or high pretest probability, and that really determines the diagnostic path we're going to take? And then once we've diagnosed a PE, you know, there's such a broad range of risk. You can have a subsegmental PE that, given certain criteria, may not even warrant anticoagulation, all the way through extremely high-risk PE, where you're in cardiogenic shock, making biomechanical circulatory support, and potentially surgical thrombectomy, right? And so... Now we've gone from our high pretest probability going through the diagnostic algorithm of getting a CT pulmonary angiography diagnosed in the PE, but at this point, we have to determine what is the risk. We've moved away from the submassive, massive nomenclature because it is kind of confusing. And we think, is it low risk? Is it intermediate risk? Or is it high risk? Andrew or Pratik, where would you classify this patient along the risk scale and, and why? With the new classification system, we classify patients either as high risk, intermediate risk, or low risk. The, the way that we classify patients as high risk is based on hemodynamic changes, and that's namely evidence of hypotension. So for our patient, he does have certain hemodynamic changes. He's now quite tachycardic, but by criteria, that doesn't mean that he has a high risk PE per se. The, the diagnostic criteria is really a systolic blood pressure less than 90 or a new requirement of vasopressors. And for our patient, notably, he did have a drop in his blood pressure from where he was earlier in the day, but does not quite meet criteria for a high-risk PE. 
For intermediate risk PDs, this is largely patients who don't have these hemodynamic changes that would meet a high-risk PE, but do have evidence of RV dysfunction. And we'll kind of go into what that means in just a moment. But first, let's talk about low-risk PEs. Low-risk PEs are PEs in which there is no hemodynamic changes as well as no evidence of RV dysfunction or cardiac strain. And so how do we differentiate between low and intermediate risk? It's with low risk, there's no evidence of hemodynamic changes. There's no evidence of cardiac dysfunction, usually RV strain or elevated cardiac biomarkers, and then they have a low PESI or SPESI score. The meat of where the changes come into play are the intermediate risk patients. And so for intermediate risk, that's actually now broken into intermediate low and intermediate high risk. And a lot of that is dictated based on what we think the degree of RV strain or dysfunction is for the patient. And so as we've kind of already mentioned in this case, the things that we look at are evidence of RV dilatation or strain on imaging, which can be noted on CT scan or on echo, as well as elevation of cardiac biomarkers, namely the troclonin and BNP. The PESI or SPESI score can also be used to kind of help restratify these intermediate risk patients. Oftentimes when we think about how to the branch point between intermediate low and intermediate high risk patients, we think of kind of how severe the RV dysfunction is. And so patients that we classify as intermediate low risk have evidence of either RV dilatation or strain on imaging or elevation of cardiac biomarkers, whereas those with intermediate high risk have both the presence of RV dilatation or strain on imaging, as well as the elevated cardiac biomarkers. So, Andrew, thanks for going over how we risk stratify patients once we've made the diagnosis. We have all these scores we can use to help us establish the probability, right? So again, pre-diagnosis, we may use the Wells criteria to think, is this a low, intermediate, or high pretest probability to determine whether or not we can use D-dimer to rule this patient out? But once we make the diagnosis, you're talking about the PESI score or the pulmonary embolism severity index. That's again, after diagnosis of a pulmonary embolism to help stratify, is it the low risk or intermediate risk? And the S-PESI you mentioned is, of course, the simplified PESI score, which may be easier to use. But again, just a different score, but we can use that to help us understand the patient. Of course, if the patient is high risk, we know that based on their blood pressure, if there's a thrombus in transit or cardiac arrest. In this particular patient, given what you have so far, their labs, your CT, maybe the PESI score, where did we fall in the risk stratification? Yeah, I think, you know, I would classify him as intermediate high risk. He has evidence of RV dilatation on CT scan. He has quite elevated cardiac biomarkers. He has a fairly elevated PESI score. You could even argue with the drop in his blood pressure that he is approaching a high risk PE. But I think for the time being, I would classify him as intermediate high risk. I think the one caveat to add here is you need to look at people's longitudinal history, especially their blood pressure. So if this is someone who you know, not this patient, but another patient is on three antihypertensive agents, and you see that their systolics are in the low 100s, off any agents, even though they may not be hypotensive by some of the cutoffs, this is a a new change for them. So looking also for relative hypotension is important, not just the absolute cutoff. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think easy to miss if you don't know the longitudinal 
a historical perspective of the patient where they lie. And, and so a drop in systolic blood pressure of 40 or greater millimeters of mercury is also another criteria that should land them in a high risk category, you know, help us in triaging the patient and approaching the management. And similarly with the longitudinal history of the patient, you know, knowing that they had come into surgery with the RV dysfunction for whatever reason, maybe underlying pulmonary hypertension, that would also be something that you might modify knowing that there's a new PE involved might actually make you more wary or more concerned about your patient, even if their hemodynamics are doing okay right now. Just knowing their amount of reserve is going to be limited than somebody who has no past clinical history. So Andrew, our patient has an intermediate high risk. How do you manage that? So yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think the data is more clear cut if he had, for example, a high risk PE or a low risk PE. We know if he had a high risk PE, he has an indication for systemic thrombolysis. Although given his recent surgery, that would probably involve a bit of a discussion. Luckily, that was not the case. For low-risk PE, we know that anticoagulation alone is sufficient, but that leaves a large group of people in the intermediate risk category where, to date, we don't have the correct answer, if you will, for how to best treat these patients. And I think that's where at MGH, we have a PE response team that we often will come together for these intermediate risk patients to try to figure out what we think would be best for them, whether that be anticoagulation alone, or whether that would be more advanced therapies such as percutaneous thrombectomy, percutaneous catheter-directed thrombolysis, surgical intervention, or whatnot. Yeah, you know, we're also very lucky to have a PE response team here at the Cleveland Clinic, a multidisciplinary team that involves all the responsible parties. Extremely helpful to have the the judgment of such a multidisciplinary group, especially when it's less clear. And I just kind of leafing through my memory of when we've had the most discussions. It's for these, you know, intermediate or intermediate high-risk patients when, you know, you don't know what the next 12, 24, 36, 48 hours will bring because they're not quite high risk, but, you know, but certainly have concerning signals like this patient. Andrew, you, you, you mentioned some of the tools we have at our fingertips. Prateek, as a vascular interventional fellow, would you mind just kind of going through what are the most more advanced options we have available to us so we can arm our PER team with the, all the decision-making available? Of course. So the way I would think about this is with anything else. You go from the least to the most invasive options. And on the least invasive option, we've already talked about some form of parental anticoagulation or parental thrombolytics, which is not going to be applicable here. The most invasive option is a surgical thromboembolectomy. In between the least invasive and the most invasive options are our transcatheter therapies. The approaches are going to be transjugular or transfemoral. I think most interventional cardiologists tend to utilize transfemoral, but in certain patients, especially uh, anatomy or if there's thrombotic burden in the cava itself, a transjugular approach may be needed, which would then also dictate what kind of equipment you can use. So going in towards the less sort of invasive in terms of size-wise, you have catheter-directed thrombolytics, and this involves putting in anywhere, usually a six-front sheath, and then getting into the pulmonary arteries and leaving some form of a catheter that will then, you'll give a small pulse spray of uh, TPA, and then you'll leave some device that will essentially drip out at a slow infusion. The total amount of TPA delivered, typically it's going to involve both pulmonary arteries, is going to be anywhere from a fourth or a fifth of what you would expect max as compared to systemic thrombolytics. So this is where some devices like ECOS, which people may have heard of, or even a fountain catheter come in. Patik, many of us in, in, in the audience are very familiar with floating swan catheters, right? So we're going into similar areas. Does this procedure differ very much from floating a swan catheter, just technically? 
technically speaking, no, but practically speaking, it can. When you have patients with elevated pulmonary pressures, both acute or chronic, it can be harder to get up into the pulmonary artery. They're sort of more hostile pulmonary arteries. So if people have experienced floating a Swan-Gans catheter or just a right heart catheter in patients with pulmonary hypertension, that's going to be those same tools that we utilize, sort of the, the skills are going to apply here. But sometimes it can be difficult, especially if there's more proximal thrombotic burden, right where the PA bifurcates, it might be difficult to get the Swan out to more near a sort of a wedge position or even the distal PA. And then in that case, we would typically transition to using different catheters, often a larger, so six French, generally uh, angled pigtail catheter can sort of manipulate that a little bit better. Like, and just to build on what Pratik is saying is what's the benefit of delivering catheter direct thrombolysis is if you, the standard dose to give parenteral thrombolysis is 100 milligrams over two hours. Patients with relative contraindications to thrombolysis, you can cut that in half and get 50 milligrams. But with a catheter-directed thrombolysis, you're delivering, you know, 20 to maybe 24 milligrams, so a much less dose in a targeted local way. And, uh, you know, why not just give, you know, Prithik mentioned a pigtail catheter, why not just use a pigtail catheter? You know, you can, but the Ecos catheter, Prithik, correct me if I'm wrong, but delivers ultrasound waves with a thought that you can disturb the fibrin strands and improve penetration of TPA within the clot itself. Absolutely. And there are other catheters out there, one of which, you know, my old program director came up with a sheer endovascular catheter, which maciates up the clot and then stays there as an infusion catheter. So there are many different things that are coming to market. The benefit as opposed to just giving a pulse through the swan, I suppose, or the pigtail is that by having something that stays in there and in some way, shape or form, assists with the slow delivery, you're allowing it to sort of continue to break down the thrombus. So you want to increase the maximal surface area of that fresh thrombus that's exposed to the TPA. By having a continued infusion, you're then sort of cutting away continuously. It's the same reason why, you know, a snowplow goes by more than once a night when it's snowing. You want to keep going continuously to break it down. And so that's sort of the idea behind a catheter-directed thrombolysis or CDT as we often refer to it is that you have a lower dose infusion. It stays locally where the thrombotic burden is highest. Then as the most exposed area of thrombus is broken down with a lytic, the thrombus behind it that was previously unexposed then gets exposed to it. And Ecoast, which is using um, ultrasonic waves to help kind of break this up continuously is one option. Some people will just use a more of a traditional infusion catheter, like a, a fountain catheter. But fundamentally, the idea is that you want sort of a low, slow drip of TPA that stays where most of the thrombotic burden is without giving you the overall systemic side effects. And as you alluded to, generally, you can keep the total amount of TPA given, including with a pulse spray when you first put the catheter in, uh, below 20 milligrams, which will certainly make it a lot safer, especially if you have patients who have higher bleeding risks, including the elderly or postoperative. Yeah, that's amazing. And so, you know, essentially you have a both a medical and a mechanical treatment locally, but that's the catheter-directed thrombolysis. Let's move to the next percutaneous option. Sure. So the percutaneous option for a percutaneous thromboembolectomy, this is moving more towards the, what I think of the aggressive or invasive. So more towards the surgical side of things. And essentially there are two main ones right now that would allow you to remove the thrombus. They're both through aspiration. One option is a penumbra suction aspiration thrombectomy, 
the Penumbra system is available. It was originally started for interventions in the uh, intracranial and cerebral carotid circuit. And now they have a wide range of catheters. You know, to think of it simply, it's, it's a vacuum and it comes in different sizes, anywhere from four to 12. Once you're within the pulmonary arterial circuit over guide wire, you can exchange out your swan or your pigtail, and then you will just go up with this catheter and it has a suction device that's turned on and it will just start sucking clot out. So they have some variants on it. They have a lightning feature that's supposed to auto detect when the device is within clot versus blood to try to minimize blood loss. But these aspiration devices all have a significant amount of blood loss associated with them. When patients have a large amount of thrombotic burden that's condensed or in one area, they're going to be more successful. Otherwise, if they're anemic, these patients are going to have significant amount of blood loss and require transfusion before the procedure. The next option is uh, Inari, which makes a few different devices, but they all fall under the header of flow retriever. And this is a much larger system. The Penumbra system, the 12 French system, is probably the one that's most commonly used in the pulmonary arteries. Then the Nari system is something called flow retriever, and its range is anywhere from 20 French to 24 French. And so it's a, just a very large hollow tube in many senses that once it's placed up against the thrombus, there's a suction vacuum that's placed on the back end and it will suck it out and then you bring it out through its own dry seal device and then set the clot aside. So this one, as opposed to having an automated machine that will perform the aspiration for you, it's a manual suction thrombectomy. And then the Inari device has some sort of nitinol discs and sort of accessories that come with it that can be placed within the thrombus almost to, to sort of draw it back within it. the device itself, try to help scrape back clot, if you will. In some ways, a very crude version of a you know, pulmonary thromboendarterectomy that the surgeons may perform. And then the last option is a combination of these two. So having some combination of a, a few milligrams of TPA and then following it up with a thrombectomy can also be done if it's too hard just to use the suction aspiration thrombectomy percutaneously alone. And Pratik, are you uh, going after the thrombus using contrast media to identify where the thrombus is and then parking your thrombectomy catheters there? Or are you placing it somewhere in the central PA and then aspirating from there? That's a great question. So I think it's very similar to a lot of procedures that we may do. If you think about TAVI, if you think about carotid interventions, you may have CT imaging up front, but whenever you go in there, especially when you're taking subtracted angiograms, you're going to want to repeat the angio yourself. And so our practice and everywhere else that I've seen and been, people will start with a subtracted angio of the pulmonary arteries. Depending on how much clot there is, that subtracted angio might be non-selective, so the distal part of the pulmonary artery, or if it's at all possible, within the proximal segments of the right pulmonary artery and then the proximal segments of the left pulmonary artery. Sometimes just with the amount of pressure there's there from all the changes that are going on with the uh, significant amount of thrombotic burden in the pulmonary arteries, you may have to do a relatively non-selective, so more distal pulmonary artery angio as opposed to right pulmonary artery angio and left pulmonary artery angio. And the nice benefit of that is sometimes when there's a significant amount of clot, the contrast will will hang up, it'll stain there. And so that'll that'll allow you to sort of know where to go. The challenging part with taking a subtracted angio in these patients are they're not feeling well. They're coming to the cath lab, they're tachypnic, 
they're hypoxic, very commonly you'll have to place them on positive pressure ventilation because now that you've got them lying so high, the oxygen exchange is worse, right? As opposed to when they're sitting up. And so it can be hard to have them hold their breath even just long enough to get a good subtracted angiogram. But a good subtracted angiogram will really allow you to see where the highest sort of billing defects are, and that'll allow you to then position if you're using a thrombectomy device, such as the Penumbra or the Inari, you want to place that directly into the clot to minimize your blood loss. And then even with catheter-rapid thrombolysis, where you want to place your device, you know, if you have more clot burden in the interlobar artery, you want to place the device a little bit more towards that way. You don't want it pointing up towards the upper lobe. And so I think that it really is the standard to have an angiogram when you start the procedure, just to be able to direct where you want to go. And you sometimes, you know, things have changed from when the patients had their CAT scan. And we're surprised what we see differently on our angio as compared to the CAT scan, just from, you know, good therapeutic parental anticoagulation in sometimes as short as, you know, six hours. Pratik, thanks for going over all that. And I have to say, hearing you going over the technical nuances is particularly exciting for me as a beginning interventional cardiology fellow. And a lot of my exposure to these techniques is through Dr. Joe Campbell, who's extraordinarily talented and actually trained up there at MGH with your mentors. So just a step back and think about the decision making as a whole for, for the bulk of the audience. You know, just going back to what's available, the best available data is with systemic thrombolysis, right? That's where the, we have mortality data for improvement. But the systemic thrombolysis is also high risk, right? 6% or so risk of major bleeding and 3% or so risk of intracranial hemorrhage, which is very high. A lot of patients won't be candidates for that. And so, you know, maybe the next line therapy, if available, would be surgical embolectomy which, uh, again, has a lot of data uh, historically. And for patients who are surgical candidates, it may be appropriate and it's probably first line when you have a clot in transit, especially when you have a PFO. You know, stepping back from that, if you have a relative contraindication to systemic thrombolysis, that's where you can consider catheter-directed thrombolysis because, again, we discussed how you can use lower doses. And if a patient uh, is not a surgical candidate, then the ability to alleviate the hemodynamic stress of a PE with catheter-directed thrombolysis and or mechanical thrombectomy is uh, extremely useful. You know, for a patient who has an absolute contraindication to thrombolytics and is not a surgical candidate, then, you know, uh, short of just putting them on unfractionated heparin, catheter-directed thrombectomy is really your only available option for a more advanced technique. Of course, if, if a patient is in shock, having arrested, then with any of these techniques, you can use mechanical circulatory support to help reduce the stress on the RV and recover RV function, and then go on to the next step, whether it's a catheter-directed procedure, systemic thrombolysis, or surgical embolectomy. I think an important caveat to know is that any of the catheter-directed therapies, they've never been studied to show mortality benefit. I think having randomized clinical trials for patients who are so critically ill, potentially in cardiogenic shock, potentially arresting is very challenging, although it's been done. But they all tend to use surrogate markers of RV to LV ratio. And, you know, we do know that RV to LV ratio does correlate with mortality and adverse outcomes. But it'd be like saying that alpha-HEFREF trials with, you know, say RD, for instance, studied against anti-pro-BMP as the primary outcome. So, again, with that caveat in mind, you know, certainly the use of catheter-directed therapy, whether it's thrombolysis or thrombectomy, certainly, you know, it's clear why you would have benefit, you know, being able to deliver a smaller dose of thrombolysis and or mechanically removing the clot, which is your culprit for the hemodynamic stressor. These caveats are important. And so that goes into your medical decision-making and shared decision-making with the patient, how you consent the family and the patient. But with those things in mind, Andrew, Prathik, what did you guys end up doing for your patient? 
So one thing I would like to just add as we continue, surgical thrombomolectomy is going to be a variable in terms of how appropriate it is for the patients really dependent on the surgeon and the anesthesiologist there, because some surgeons may be comfortable doing it without bypass. Others may require it. So there are a lot of technical considerations that come into it, which obviously we can't speak to, but certainly in some patients where anticoagulation or thrombolytics are contraindicated or felt to be less safe, a surgical thrombobolectomy may be actually a very good option. And I think that's part of why we really believe in the PE response team, our multidisciplinary team at MGH. Especially we tried, it, it can be challenging because getting everyone together virtually, you know, in a, what we do in a HIPAA compliant Zoom session after we send out a page and an email, especially can be difficult because people have different clinical needs and patients declare themselves at different times of the day. So uh, I think as Andrew's going to talk about, we called a PE response team meeting for this particular patient with all the stakeholders I just mentioned. Yeah, that's exactly right, Pratik. So shortly after the diagnosis of the PE for this patient, he was started on a heparin drip. The, the decision for heparin was made in conjunction with the neurosurgical team, given his recent surgery and potential need for additional interventions. The one thing I would note is that if we had our druthers, uh, we would pretty much always recommend initiation of subcutaneous anoxaparin upfront over IV heparin. There has been numerous studies to support that, and we see it all the time when we have patients with PE that we often struggle to get patients on heparin drips within a therapeutic range, whereas with Wolvenox, we know we will get to that therapeutic range at a quicker time point. So just a, a plug there to use Wolvenox if comorbidities allow. So the patient was started on a heparin drip, and we ended up having a, a PE response team, a PERT team meeting for this patient. And as essentially, more or less, we went through all of the different therapeutic options for this patient that Pratik has already gone through. So the, the main ones that we thought of were whether or not this patient would get better on anticoagulation alone the least invasive thing that we could do, whether or not we should use a, a form of lytic therapy, likely catheter-directed, but thought about systemic as well, whether or not this patient would be a surgical candidate for a surgical thrombectomy, or whether or not we should entertain the idea of a, a percutaneous thrombectomy or a thromboembolectomy option. So just kind of running through those one by one, given the recent surgeries, the neurosurgical intervention, intervention five days prior and the left radial fracture, the ORIF that occurred four days prior, it felt that lytic therapy, both from the PE response team perspective, as well as from the neurosurgical team. So with regards to the use of lytic therapy, you know, notably he had the T12 to L2 fusion five days prior, as well as an open reduction and internal fixation of his left radial fracture four days prior to diagnosis of PE. And so both the PE response team, as well as the neurosurgical team, which is his primary team, didn't feel comfortable with the idea of giving a, a lytic therapy given the recent surgical interventions. And in general, it's a relative contraindication to give a lytic therapy 10 days after a surgery. We all felt that lytic therapy was off the table at this point, uh, leaving anticoagulation, a surgical approach, or a percutaneous thromboembolectomy approach. We luckily have the cardiac surgeons uh, as part of our PE response team at MGH, and so they were on the Zoom call. Based on the location of the PEs, it did seem as if they are proximal enough 
to be amenable to a surgical approach. But their main concern was that for them, that they would require the patient to go on bypass. And they were concerned about the degree of anticoagulation that would be required on bypass, such that it would pose an increased bleeding risk given his recent surgeries. So the amount of anticoagulation is much higher than what we would give just for the treatment of PE while he's on bypass. And so they were worried about the downstream effects of that, namely bleeding. And so they did not feel that a surgical approach was the best approach. It was a feasible approach, but not necessarily the best approach. And so that left us with the decision of whether or not to do anticoagulation alone and percutaneous thromboembolectomy. And this is kind of the crux of the decision-making that we often come to as to whether or not it's anticoagulation alone or something a little bit more advanced for a lot of these intermediate risk patients. I think the, the decision was ultimately made to proceed with a percutaneous thromboembolectomy approach, mainly for a couple of reasons. You know, we, we often make this decision based on how the patient looks. We have a lot of data, but it's often the eyeball test. And I think, you know, for us, he didn't look overly uncomfortable, but we were relatively concerned about just his degree of tachypnea and if that's something he was going to be able to kind of continue keeping up with. The other subtle markers that we do look at, or not so subtle in this case, is the, the sheer degree of tachycardia that this patient had, as well as the slowly downtrending systolic blood pressures. And so the combination of all of those kind of pushed us more towards a decision of doing something more than just blood thinners alone. And so ultimately, in agreement with everybody else in the PE response team, the decision was made to take the patient to the cath lab to perform a percutaneous thromboembolectomy. I think Andrew raises a very good point here. In some ways, PEs are sort of second nature for uh, cardiology trainees and cardiologists because fundamentally this is an RV afterload issue. And so if you are used to looking at patients and sort of can tell when you're not comfortable with the way a patient in heart failure looks, that eyeball test is critical when it comes to a patient with PE. And so he didn't seem to look well to the providers. And once, you know, if you've seen enough people in heart failure, you've seen enough people coming in with MIs people who have some degree of mechanical cardiac dysfunction, then that's really where the eyeball test comes in. And that's where it applies for the patients with PE too, which is, it's not on the PESI, but it's very much sort of like, you know, the ASA status for a patient. This is a great discussion, guys. It really gives us a window into what goes on in a per team call. So you made your decision to go for a catheter-directed thrombectomy. How did the patient do with that? The patient did well with the procedure. In this case, we used an angled pigtail to get up into the pulmonary arteries. We'll measure the pressures before we take our first angios. And so when he came in, his PA systolic pressures were 51 millimeters of mercury. As we discussed between the range of options, we ended up using the Inari flow retriever. This involved a 24 French dry seal that was perclosed in this right femoral vein. And then we used a few of their different devices, including their 24 French device and then their flex uh, 20 French device that's designed to get into the left interlobar artery, as well as a little device, a, a cage that kind of helps to bring clot distally to proximally within the suction aspect of it. And the patient did very well with it. It was technically challenging because at times when the clot, which was a little bit more organized, wouldn't suck right into the device. And so the adjunctive cage device was required to break up the clot almost to bring it within the catheter. But by the end of the procedure, his PA systolic pressures had dropped to 19 millimeters of mercury. And then the access site had no issues. It was closed with the pre-closed percloses. The sort of the most difficult part of the procedure for the patient is that there was about 600 cc's of blood loss, which is, as I described, one of the real shortcomings of the thrombectomy systems within the pulmonary artery for these PEs, because every time you try to get the clot out, 
you're aspirating a bunch of blood and there's a, a phenomenon that we call lollipopping. And if you imagine a short little lollipop stick with a giant lollipop on the top, that's what it looks like when there's a lot of clot on the top. So try to bring that into the cannula, the vacuum cannula. If it flies off because it's too organized and doesn't break up, you're going to end up sucking 60 cc's of blood. And, and just to be clear, you're sucking 60 cc's from a 24 French system. Is that right? That's correct. And so yeah. if you're within the clot and the clot breaks up and goes in there, you're going to suck out 60 cc's of clot. But if the clot is too organized and doesn't come within the device, you're just going to get 60 cc's of blood. And so ordinarily with this device, we'll see three to 400 cc's of blood loss. This patient ended up having 600 cc's. And that's because on the left side, especially in the left interlobar artery dives down more vertically, it's more challenging. And that's why Inari has this flex device that's got a little bit more of an angle, but the clot was sort of more packed in there, probably more chronic clot. And so technically it was difficult to get it out. And in doing so, he had much more blood loss than we would ordinarily expect, probably about 50% more than we'd normally expect. The end result, as you can see from the images and from the rapid normalization of his PA systolic pressures was excellent. But this is sort of why I alluded to up front, if the patient is anemic, which obviously you run a high risk when if you have not this orthopedic procedure, but other orthopedic procedures, this is something to consider up front about transfusing them, which could then also get into more challenging aspects if the patient has any sort of contraindications to transfusion. But in this case, he did well, and there was a significant amount of thrombotic debulking and sort of uh, rapid hemodynamic improvement as you'd ideally hope for. Pratik, that is a great masterful explanation of what you ended up doing for this patient and how you fit all the considerations that we've discussed going into this case and how we addressed it head on in this case. But I just wanted to point out for our listeners or just kind of ask the group, why do pulmonary pressures go up in pulmonary embolism? And why, as you showed with uh, your result, do pulmonary pressures come down when you relieve the obstruction? Well, Dan, uh, you know, well, one way to think about this, I guess, would be if you've got an interstate highway system, right, and you've got five lanes and all the lanes are going, it's rush hour, the cars are zooming past at whatever rate they are, but then you have a car accident and three of the lanes are closed down. And so you're going to have backup of traffic or blood pressure behind that, right? It's just the same thing with blood going through the pulmonary arteries. And essentially, you've got Prathi coming in with a catheter or I guess the cleanup crew who, you know, took care of the car accident and opened those lanes up again, right? And so essentially, with a clot, you've got part of your pulmonary vasculature that is essentially blocked. You can't have flow going through it, right? And so as you imagine, if you think of the entire pulmonary tree as a tube and part of it is blocked, your radius goes down. You know, resistance is heavily dependent on the diameter of the tube you're flowing in. And so when you relieve the clot, you go back to your normal diameter. And so, you know, it makes sense that the pressure went down after you remove the obstruction. Oh, that's a great explanation. And that would dovetail with the idea and the caution that, you know, if somebody does have a weaker right ventricle and is not able to generate those pressures, because again, the pressure is generated from that right ventricle. So in patients with really sick right ventricles and they're getting closer to that shock state where they're not able to mount those pressures, I could imagine that, yes, you may not have the highest pressures, but with relief of the obstruction, you'll actually have improved forward flow despite a decrease in delta pressures that you would get with thrombectomy. The way I simply explain it to the patients is I tell them that it's sort of like walking into a wind tunnel, right? And when you have all this clot, it's just the pressures are very high for the RV. And it's the people who have high RV afterload and aren't mounting a tachycardic response that worry me the most because that would physiologically be the natural thing to do, the natural compensation. And so, you know, that's, I think, exactly as Amit was saying, is sort of what happens. You open up the traffic and the flow improves. And then that also sort of starts arresting the sort of neurohormonal cascade that's been activated. And, you know, 
your PVR will also start to drop because naturally you're trying to shunt all the blood away to the areas that are being perfused, right? And so it's sort of a chaotic process. And by just the degree to which they improve relative to the amount of clot they, that is debulked is sort of discordant in some ways. So I think there's a lot that happens. You don't end up removing all the clot, but the patients still get markedly better. And so I think it's that you're not aiming for perfection when you're doing these procedures by far. Right. And, you know, I think if mathematically, if you just think about cardiac output and Ohm's law, right, if cardiac output equals delta pressure over resistance, and you have a clot that's blocking those three lanes of your highway and your resistance goes up, the only way to make the math work out is either your pressures go up or your cardiac output goes down. And probably it's a combination of the two. And that will largely depend on the heart's ability to compensate. And I think, Dan, that's what you're getting at, the right heart's ability to compensate, to make the pressure go up to maintain cardiac output, or a weakened right heart that ends up having a, a drop in cardiac output. And, and again, that will feed into the risk of our patient. Does our patient respond by going to cardiogenic shock? Or does a patient respond by you know having RV injury and RV strain, but mounting enough blood pressure to give us time to manage the PE? Yeah. So one thing that is applicable when thinking about these patients, especially from a technical standpoint, the Inari devices are rather large, anywhere from 20 to 24 French. And so when patients have very high pulmonary uh, arterial pressures, especially if it's an acute on chronic insult, it's actually something that you need to be very mindful of because even sometimes, especially, and this is where I think a high quality RV focused echo can be helpful. If they're doing poorly or if they come in on pressors, taking that large device up there is going to also add some afterload. And it potentially could be devastating for the patient and may require sort of escalation in vasopressors or even mechanical circulatory support. And so that's part of the decision-making that goes into deciding between the penumbra or the Inari device. You know, he tolerated very well, but there are noted instances, and it's something that I believe the FDA sort of commented on to um, earlier in the year to make sure to think about. And so these patients, although they can look well, as you know, we've all seen with people with different forms of cardiogenic shock, it's important to have a sort of cohesive plan. You know, if there is a cardiac anesthesiologist involved, which, you know, you may be lucky enough to have on your PE response team meeting, it's important to talk to them because these are the patients who, if you can avoid intubation at all costs, really behooves you. And I think, you know, sometimes when we have these higher risk patients coming in for percutaneous interventions, especially the thrombectomy, which can take longer as opposed to the uh, catheterectic thrombolytics, trying to use positive pressure ventilation and sort of being mindful with what they receive, even for sedation can be helpful because some of them can be in a little bit more of a tenuous place. Pratik, that's such a great point. And we know from our experience with severe pulmonary hypertension or anybody with real problems with RV dysfunction and patients with tamponade, a lot of these scenarios where the LV is underfilled because of a delivery problem from the right system to the left system, they're so incredibly tenuous. When we do a medical intervention or even an intubation, you know, we have to be mindful that acutely this can actually change things. So a lot of moving parts, but you know, I think the conclusion is that Pratik, Andrew, and their team just did a phenomenal job taking care of this intermediate high-risk patient with a PE using anticoagulation and catheter-directed thrombectomy. Andrew, with all that, how did the patient do? So the patient did exceptionally well after the procedure. He was transferred to the cardiac ICU just for post-procedural monitoring. This is not something that is uniformly done for all patients who undergo this procedure, but I would say is 
is the common practice that is done. He was in the ICU for a short period of time and was transitioned out to the regular medicine floor later that evening. He had noted improvements in his hemodynamics, so his heart rate improved to the 80s to 90s after the procedure with normalization of his blood pressures back to systolics in the 120s to 130s. His O2 requirement also normalized and he was on room air setting and then upper 90s that evening as well. He was transitioned from the heparin trip to Lovenox for a brief period of time and then was ultimately discharged on Apixaban with a planned course of six months of anticoagulation for a provoked venous thromboembolism. He remained in the hospital for two days after the procedure and was discharged home thereafter. Andrew, Prateek, this was such a valuable case. It really highlighted, A, the multidisciplinary aspect of patient care, which really is percolates through so many of our episodes and so many of our disease states. But B, you took us from beginning to end of a case of pulmonary embolism, really highlighting how we diagnose it, triage it, and then treat it and attack it so that we can help patients do better. And I just want to thank you both. And this brewery is fantastic. I'd like to say I'm a couple beers in, but I'm drinking responsibly because we got a long drive back home today. So thank you all. This was an absolute pleasure. And thank you for being our first vascular medicine recording. This was absolutely fantastic. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us, guys. It's been a real pleasure. And now for the ECPR portion, I'd like to introduce Dr. Ido Weinberg. Dr. Ido Weinberg is the program director of the Clinical Vascular Medicine Fellowship at MGH. He is a excellent clinician. He's become my mentor and a good friend over this past year. Ido, take it away. Hello, my name is Ido Weinberg. I'm a vascular medicine physician at Mass General Hospital in Boston. I'd like to thank CardioNerds for allowing me to speak here. And I'd also like to thank Andrew Dix, our former fellow, for introducing me to CardioNerds and setting up this opportunity. I think Andrew presented a wonderful case, and I think there's a lot to learn from it about pulmonary embolism management and modern care. And I'd be very uh, proud and honored to offer a few uh, of my thoughts regarding this case and about pulmonary embolism treatment in general. Before I start, it's important for me to just disclose uh, what needs to be disclosed. I'm a uh, consultant for a company called Magneto. This is a company that, among other things, creates thrombectomy devices also used in pulmonary embolism. I'm also a national PI, co-national PI for uh, Penumbra, another company that manufactures and develops uh, thrombectomy devices. So those are two important disclosures. If anybody has any issues with anything I say here today, I'm more than happy to communicate uh, with anyone out there. First, the case that Andrew uh, brought up was a case of a patient who presented with pulmonary embolism and in the end was treated with uh, suction thrombectomy. Uh, The patient fared well after that. And it's a wonderful example of how a group of people came together through what's called a PERT or a pulmonary embolism response team. And how after going through the options for the patient, they decided to use this solution to help them out. And I think as a person myself who does not uh, perform procedures, I believe this case brings up several issues. And I was thinking about it. And and these are the issues that I'd like to uh, discuss. First, I'd like everybody out there to know how we should treat most patients with pulmonary embolism. Most patients need to be treated with anticoagulation promptly and only with anticoagulation. I'll get back to that. Secondly, I would like to discuss when we still do need to use intervention or advanced therapies upfront, not wait, but rather implement advanced therapies immediately when the patient presents or soon after. And thirdly, I would like to also bring up when we should escalate therapy. 
So different than the previous scenario where we should use intervention upfront, other times we follow patients, we start with anticoagulation, but we end up escalating treatment for some reason. And I'd like to discuss that. So these are issues that I think the case brings up. After I go through these issues, if time allows, I also plan to just give my two pointers about long-term follow-up of patients post-pulmonary embolism. So back to how should we treat most patients with a pulmonary embolism. So again, the bottom line is most patients do very well with anticoagulation. The problem is that for some reason, in many instances, anticoagulation is uh, delayed. And by delayed, I mean sometimes by hours, sometimes by days. And this is not uncommon. This has been published. Not only that, Oftentimes, when anticoagulation is administered, patients are underdosed and receive inappropriate anticoagulation. It's been shown that when patients receive appropriate anticoagulation, they do better than when they receive inappropriate anticoagulation. When they're undertreated, they do not do as well. And so most patients should be treated with anticoagulation. I think Andrew, when he presented the case, stressed that low molecular weight heparin, such as anoxaparin, is a good option. It's definitely a good option because it covers the patient for several hours. Other options could be oral agents, such as the uh, DOAX medicines, such as rivaroxaban, apixaban, and the bigotran are available for the treatment of PE. Remember, though, that the bigotran cannot be given upfront, but has to be given after a preliminary uh, parenteral treatment. So at the end of the day, if you want to treat a patient upfront with anticoagulation that is appropriate, you'll usually reach for a low molecular weight heparin or a DOAC that is a pixaban or rivaroxaban. The next thing I said I'd talk about would be when should we intervene upfront? So, you know, pulmonary embolism is a spectrum of presentations, right? So many patients present with uh, minor, ra relatively minor symptoms, some shortness of breath, some chest pain. Other patients present more um, subtly, actually. So a patient could be completely asymptomatic. You all have heard that a pulmonary embolism can be a masquerader. A patient could have sort of this insidious, chronic, creeping shortness of breath with exertion, dyspnea on exertion. But on the other end of the spectrum, patients can also present very dramatically. So patients can basically present with sudden death or be found down outside of the hospital. A patient may pass away before being able to receive medical care. And often, and sometimes that is the way that PE presents. Sometimes we encounter patients in the hospital, either in the emergency department or on the floor, when the patient is an extremis. So the patient is going to be extremely short of breath. Uh, or hypotensive or in shock. Patients like this, you can't sometimes wait for them to improve with anticoagulation alone, and sometimes aggressive measures are necessary. Now, by this term, aggressive measures, what I mean is that patients will either need intravenous uh, lytic therapy, or they will need some sort of catheter-based uh, treatment, either catheter-directed thrombolysis or suction thrombectomy of some kind. And we mustn't forget that patients sometimes do very well with open surgical embolectomy. 
and in centers where that is available, involving uh, surgeons upfront is very helpful for patients. But then there are other kind of stabilizing measures. So uh, most important of those is probably ECMO. And many centers nowadays have ECMO teams, again, involving ECMO upfront to stabilize a patient who is unstable, can buy you time to offer other therapies that are sometimes there's need to mobilize these or to decide which one is best for your patient. So if a patient is very much in a bad place clinically, sometimes intervening upfront is the right thing to do. And then you have all these patients who are in the middle, patients who on the one hand are sitting maybe in bed talking to you, maybe they're somewhat dyspneic, maybe their blood pressure was low but now has improved, maybe uh, none of the above but on echocardiogram you notice that their RV is dilated, maybe they have an elevated troponin, an elevated BNP, maybe a patient with many comorbid conditions, maybe a patient with a large DVT on top of the PE. So patients that for some reason you are concerned about, they are not the straightforward instance that you know you will be able to treat with anticoagulation alone necessarily, but also this is not a patient that you know needs uh, a prompt intervention right now. These patients benefit greatly from observation. We definitely, uh, more often than not, advocate for an intensive care unit bed for these patients. We monitor them closely. We visit with them very frequently and we look for signs of deterioration. We try to catch these patients before they kind of crash. And if they do deteriorate, we uh, sometimes offer advanced therapies. Also, patients who fail to improve over time, so maybe a patient who's somewhat dyspneic or a patient who becomes dyspneic when they try to mobilize, maybe try to walk around the, uh, the floor or something like this, in a way that incapacitates them, in a way that does not allow for them to be discharged, that may be kind of a soft reason to advance your measures above and beyond anticoagulation sometimes. So observation is important. To summarize this, I, again, I cannot stress enough prompt and appropriate anticoagulation for all patients with PE, prompt intervention for those patients in extremis, and close monitoring for the large group of patients in the middle with uncommon escalation of therapy but for the reasons that I mentioned. And then I just want to, you know, maybe mention just for a couple of minutes, the long-term follow-up of patients with PE. So this I've learned over the years is something that is sometimes neglected. And by neglected, I mean, at the end of the day, you want to follow these patients because you want to make sure that they improve the way you expect them to improve. You want to ensure they don't need some sort of intervention after time has passed. You also want to address their duration of anticoagulation. There are questions about that. All of us have seen patients receiving anticoagulation for too short a period of time or too long a period of time. Oftentimes you need to address questions to do with interruptions of anticoagulation, for example, for a procedure. Then there's the matter of IVC filters. That's not the topic of this conversation, but you know, if a filter has been inserted, it must come out. And so follow-up allows for that as well. And so I, I'd like to say that we do our very best to follow uh, all patients with PE closely. We try to get them in with a PE, with somebody who sees these patients quickly within two and six weeks, kind of depending on the scenario. And then during follow-up, we consider, um, of course, clinical monitoring. We monitor their progression. A patient should improve, but it, it may surprise some of the listeners that 
uh, a patient, it may take a patient as long as six months and even a year to truly, truly return to their baseline. So give it time, but you, you should see a positive trajectory. In patients with baseline abnormalities within their echocardiogram, when they present it, don't forget to follow echo metrics. And I'm a huge believer of uh, CPET, cardiopulmonary exercise testing. I think it gives a ton of super useful information and it helps me uh, recognize those patients who are not improving over time. Not to plug my own publications, but we we did learn that patients uh, exhibit a very demonstrable deficits even six months out. So don't be surprised about that, but it can definitely help you measure in an objective way how your patient is doing. And finally, don't be shy about referring patients to uh, people who see PE patients routinely. My main reason to refer, for example, to a pulmonary hypertension clinic would be when I suspect thromboembolic uh, pulmonary hypertension, when patients are not improving the way I suspect they would be. They would. Sometimes there is a complex question to do with anticoagulation. Sometimes there are procedural questions that need to be addressed. And so, you know, don't don't uh, be shy about referring patients to your colleagues who may kind of see more PE patients than you. I'd be happy to, again, communicate with any of you. Uh, my Twitter handle is at uh, angiologist. My website is angiologist.com. And uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. Again, thank you uh, to Andrew Dix, who invited me into CardioNerd to allow this to happen. Thank you very much. Boop. Boop.